and we glamorize certain things and we make it available to only certain types of people. And that is exactly what mental health was for a very long time. When they say it was for white people, it didn't necessarily mean just because it was a white people thing, but also access to only a certain population of people who one had the affordability or could get good treatment. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. My name is Steve Opolinik. Thanks for tuning in today. This is our sixth installment of Stigma is Curable. We are actually talking through the lovely grants from Belchertown Cultural Council and Mass Cultural Council. They gave us funding so that we can have each month a different person come in and talk about stigmas related to mental health, physical health, uh, equity, equality, sexism, racism, and um, you know everything that is happening in our society that people may not be educated on. Today, we are super honored to have Whitney Dodds with us. She's been on our podcast and blew it up. Amazing conversation. Um, and, you know, we're really excited to have her come and talk about, you know, systemic and racial barriers to mental health for black and brown individuals and communities. And a little bit about her so she doesn't have to introduce herself. It can always be awkward. I'll do it. Um, she is a licensed mental health counselor and a licensed professional counselor in Connecticut, I believe. She is the owner, operator, all things uh, business related to Wellness for the Culture, which is an amazing company out in Springfield, Massachusetts, and really looking to change the way things are viewed and provided for local communities. Um, and she's just really, really awesome. So <laughs> that's my introduction. I'm going to pass it over to Whitney. And Thank you, Steve, for your introduction. And um, it's awesome. <laughs> and um, thank you for inviting me on the show and thinking I was cool enough to invite on. Um, so initially when we met you you enjoyed um thought about the work that I did and um we had such a good uh conversation and dialogue on your podcast which was to date I think one of my favorite um and I'm not sure if it's because you know therapist the therapist you just provided the space to allow me to just you know be um but I did really appreciate it and and we got talking a little bit about your your workshop series and stigma. And a lot of times um, when I hear cultural stigma and everybody hears it, we have like this like one understanding of cultural stigma. And I think 
when we were talking again is like well it's not necessarily cultural stigma it's not something we excuse me created it's not something that is I want to say, you know, traditional, right? Right. It's not something like we sit at Kwanzaa and talk about like how cultural stigma is. And so I want to like change the narrative of what cultural stigma actually is. Um, it's not cultural, it's stigma and it does surround mental health. And it is, there are barriers, right? To how, and it's specific, I mean, to black and brown populations, but what is it? It's not cultural, it's race right? And it's systemic. Um, it's lack of trust and all to do with certain type of cultures, but not coming from this culture. And so I want to change that so that we, if we know how to talk about certain things, we can change how we think about it. Then it then plays out in our, our, um, our therapeutic practices and in the spaces that we are inviting healing into. And so, um, so again, the narrative is that it is culturally initiated and motivated, um, that's not true. And I wanna to think about certain things about where it comes from and how it got here and how to change the, the conversation. So what exactly are the barriers and apprehensiveness to treatment that uh, black and brown people face? Well, it's lack of trust, right? Um, lack of safety in therapeutic practices, techniques, um, and we can go all the way as far back as to who founded, right? Who who started psychology? Who were the people? What time frame was this in? How do we get all of our information? And what do we practice, right? And so, I what I usually go back to is my first thoughts of therapy, like my first ever. Um, I'm watching it on TV, Law and Order, SVU, right? And those are my therapeutic. And I'm just thinking of like, uh, if you guys know D.B. Wong, he's like the, the therapy person on, right? Um, on the, and I'm looking at the, the, the portrayal of Black people on there, always apprehensive, always saying, I don't need therapy, always, you know, it's always very negative. And I'm, I always try to figure out what that is from. And, and I think, and again, another story is we don't talk about this in our community. Why is that? but mostly because that was my first thought process in going into therapy is I actually <laughs> played out a scene I watched from a movie it, from literally verbatim and I sat at my first therapy session at 12 years old after a very traumatic experience and said to her you know I don't need therapy and she's like, well, your mom brought you here to be helpful and trying to get me all along, but I didn't know what to actually say or do. And even prior to this moment, I still didn't really know what therapy was. I was sitting in the office. I didn't know what to say or do. I only know like, okay, this is what you're supposed to do in therapy. And like, all I heard on TV one time was like, black people don't go to therapy, right? But, but that was it. And so imagine me today thinking, I don't even know what I, what could have been different if I would have gone to therapy. Like if I would have done that, I mean, I probably wouldn't maybe not even stand here right now or sit here cause it's zoom, but I probably wouldn't even be here doing what I'm doing because it would have been normal. It would have been talked about. It would have healing would have taken place a long time ago. Right. Instead of just becoming the narrative and push for it now in 2021. Right. Um, 
So that that's it. The, the narratives and what we get are mostly from from TV and now social media, right? And now the push for it. And I know it's a bigger push now after COVID, which is also amazing. But there's still so many, you know, repercussions for that. Um, so also, what I think is another barrier is the lack of culturally competent therapist. Um, creating trust and safety in a session is like number one, right? You, you have to be able to set the atmosphere for someone to come in and want to heal in certain spaces. I, I think about reasons why people are apprehensive to treatment and you want me to come in here and tell you my whole life, but I don't really know you. So trust is something, if you do not know anything about, <laughs> I'm gonna speak to myself, a black person, they want to know that you get them. Even though we're taught all up and through school, you do not have to have the same experience as a person. You don't have to. But the first thing somebody wants to know is, do you get me? And some people can say, okay, you don't have to have my experiences. But for the most part, trust is very, and, and sometimes lived experience. Because at, at, at the least, even if you don't have my lived experience, I want you to validate right my lived experience and, and that's not something that's easily you know attainable for a lot of people especially if you don't know how to put yourself aside and so validating the black experience and sometimes having to separate yourself is very hard um safety when i think about things like dcf right and how they are there's a whole culture within that enforcing people it's like for example i in my beginning years of as a clinician um, I had to work obviously in you know the community space and a lot of my referrals from DCF um, police departments things like that and <laughs> I think something I literally like was repulsed by was the idea that I would have to call someone's social worker if they didn't come to therapy and like, imagine the lack of trust like that creates. I'm not coming to you. Everything you tell me, I'm, you're going to tell this person. Also, I might only be in DCF because I need housing and they want me to go to therapy. I said, I need housing, right? So like, think of all these things that like, uh, there's another barrier after barrier after barrier. Um, another barrier um, in tr and trust and safety is the whole reason I built my practice was one story of my first day out as a counselor my supervisor comes with me and we go back to the projects because that's where I'm I'm from Springfield inner city and we get to spring and I'm like so elated that I get to come back to my community and do therapy and I get to be the representation and I'm I'm super excited about this and I'm like yes I get to come back to my place and my supervisor clearly not from here but she's there to help me get settled out and like you know show me systems and work with the client doing intake um we knock on this woman's door and she looks through the blind which number one I know why you know she's looking through the blind because lived experience tells me again who are you you didn't call before you come you didn't text before you come I didn't invite you here so what do you want right we don't just willingly open our door. <laughs> so that's just something I know. But from education or avoidance of education, I'm not sure. My supervisor, not knowing 
who we were there to actually see and why she answers you know like i think you were we're here for dcf when the woman asked us who we were and immediately she opens the door immediately i like die inside and she's scared and i'm just i'm confused at like she's like who dcf i don't have dcf but like now whatever barriers were in front of her we just added like two more right and while she's opening the door for us to come in it's not because she's willing to to do treatment it is because now she's afraid right and so here comes that hierarchy now with between you know black and brown communities and wellness or or health workers right and so now we've done this again you just widen that gap um when come to find out it was actually a, a referral from the pediatrician now if she would have opened her door i can say it is an assumption i can say it is because she didn't check her bias or i could say it was from her education or just don't care i don't know however all of that encompassing one was enough to turn anyone off to therapy it doesn't help right and so in those moments we are perpetuating cycles of trauma in the black community by sheer ignorance right i'm not doing intent yet we'll talk about intent and impact after but that's the point um so wellness for the culture again was birthed out of that lack and, and need of saying something's wrong here what is that thing that is wrong here i'm not calling people's social workers i'm not calling the doctor's office for five like every day I, i'm not doing those things because that doesn't help what is it that i need to do or the idea that like i'm the helper right and you should want my help for something and, and where that stems from and when you walk into my office if you don't do these techniques the way i do them or i tell you to do them then you're not healing right or you're broken and not the system so again a way we perpetuate cycles of like everything that's that is telling them in the world and this is supposed to be the one space where they don't have to so creating a space and of advocacy and taking ownership back is where the social justice part of wellness for the culture comes from and saying i need to get these people because i see the benefits of where life could be and you know what therapy could be for certain people for all people if you choose to right um without demeaning their traditional ways of healing already right because barbershops are healing for us church is healing for us um the hairdresser the nail salon you know sister circles all of those things are healing and how do we incorporate what we already know and add these techniques and this that science is is beneficial these these studies are beneficial but how we tailor them and not to cancel out what already is um, so I take all of those things um, and I put a social justice lens on counseling and we, we teach advocacy, we teach motivation, um, actions. And so I like to think of, and I, and I read this uh, book about social justice counseling um, long ago, and I loved what he said, we are actions, um, agents of change. And everything we do should be to motivate and uplift our clients to go out and make change as well. And whatever change that is, because 
the impact that you make in the, the room one session at a time goes out to then create more waves. And if I can get to one client here, and again, by any means necessary is how I run my sessions and how I want anybody who is running a session to come in, not you're doing this wrong or not, what how you're healing is is not in my DSM-5, right? We, we can talk about that too. Um, <laughs> and how many um, people are misdiagnosed, right? Because they don't understand cultures or they're attempting to understand or overstand someone's culture. Um, there's so many, so many things to that as well, but just trying to create a space that removes you from it and get, I, again, by any means necessary, how a client comes up to the room every time somebody asks me um well what's your method right because every time you get into a well what's your favorite technique or method and I go any and all of them whatever works in that room um because I can look at the book and I can say hey do your homework in this wellness journal from page 32 to 46 and then they're gonna be like first of all I'm telling them how to heal I'm telling them that I think this works for them. And I, and I, even when I'm saying this, I don't want people to think that, that like they don't do these things. I, I know we all, there's some amazing therapists in the world, right? And they all are not just black and brown. They're every, all of us, right? It's just even some, there's more steps. Again, the impact and implicit in, and so that's what brings me to the next part is examining your bias um, and what racial sensitivity looks like. I know there has been an extreme push for DEI um, in the last year and I'm grateful and for that. And I know a lot of people are grateful for that, but how do we use that actually not just with our coworkers and not in the world, but how do we put that into therapy, right? How do we I even still have to examine my bias, even as a black woman, right? In this world, um, I'm still American, right? I still have, for the most part, lots of, you know, I'm able-bodied physically, right? Um, I'm Christian, there's another one. Like, so there's there's certain things I have to place myself in. Um, if anybody loves uh, Sonya Renee Taylor, she's amazing in her latter theory. It's beautiful. Look her up. Um, however, examining that and in, in trying to remove yourself and what you think is best for said client, and that is culturally as well, because you have to think about colonization and standards, right? Someone told you or you were telling someone what you think is right for them. And as a person of color who has been told that everything about them is wrong, they're going to believe you. And when it doesn't work, you and them are going to blame them, not you or the what you learned from. Um, and so again, a part of the education process for me and the, the course you know that I'm going to begin teaching next month is about the decolonization of mental health. And I think that is probably the most prominent part for changing the the narrative of um, mental health and what is cultural stigma, because again, founded by white men, 
during what time period, right? During slavery, who did they do all the, the tests on and things of that nature? And what were their goals? What were their motives? We don't, we don't know. They're not going to write those in the books, are they? Right? And so we're still going off of these things. I don't recall any Black um, made, like a Black person created technique in any of my education, right? Um, just recently, I see more Black psychologists and psychiatrists doing studies and, and it'd be publishing and actually not just published, used, right, in our education system and how therapy is created. And still, when we talk about these researches, it, it, research, it's still about this, the black and brown populations, but no one's still using it to inform techniques. So there, there, when, when do we do that and how do we start that, right? Um, how do we, again, take a box off of how we practice? Um, by one, taking off, what is a right and a wrong way to heal? If I come into your office and I say, this is how I've done it, this is how I do it, then you get down and do it, right? Um, I have a, a mentor slash old boss whom I love. Um, <laughs> she has a book um, and in the book I read it, she, she works with um, children with severe severe like trauma impact and she's like one of the best in the city I'm gonna shout her out but later on um and she talks about how she got down on four knees and like he wanted to play a game and so she was running after him and she was mooing and I'm thinking never <laughs> like I probably never no I'm not doing that <laughs> I'm not giving on my knees and hands but whatever it took you know, by any means necessary for that child to trust her and to allow her to, that child to heal, she was willing to do that. And I think that's where we stop. If it means examining yourself, your worldview, if it means putting a mirror to your face as a white person, if it means feeling guilty at the end of your session, if it means having to talk to a superior, that is when you, I feel like a lot of people shut down. No, because my client came in and was talking about black anxiety. And what, what I get from most times is people saying, well, that's not, that's not really true or trying to change someone's mind about their experience in the world. Because if their experience is valid, somehow you question your experience and your existence. And then now that session is not about the client anymore, right? The session is now about you. And that's not something that can be tolerated, I guess. Um, and so what does that look like? Are we telling people that their view and, and what they're doing is wrong so that we don't have to take the the next step or to question our education and that's the other part the dismantling of systems and barriers it takes that examination as again we all have learned over the last year um and i think if you can do that that's how you can be an ally in the session we talk a lot about a lot about allyship i think 
an ally goes beyond hearing DEI training, right? I feel as though an ally can listen and hear, even if they have the best intentions, how something they did cycled, you know, some type of trauma or cultural <laughs> wrongdoing. Um, but just, oh, I can be more mindful of how I came across. I see how, even though I had the best intentions, I had this impact on you. And that is, and I, again, it is not simply just even cultural. I still have to do this, the same work about impact and intent. And I, I think about intent and when you're not intentional, somehow you're still intentional. Does that make sense? If so, every time, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, I didn't mean to. But when did you mean to, right? When did you try to get this person that walked into your office? When did you try not to perpetuate cycles, right, of oppression in your, in your office? When were you intentional about that, about your impact on that client? Um, yes. So I think if... In, in, I would love to ask a question back, but maybe I can ask a question, but what does equity and inclusion look like in your practice and in during your sessions? And how do you make sure to open a space of healing um, and vulnerability? Um, so I was reading Brene Brown, like the, the guru of all things vulnerability, right? And her and Tarana Burke have a book out um, called You Are Your Best Thing, love it. Um, they open up with a statement regarding vulnerability um, and what it looks like even now after all the things have exploded in the last year. And they, they made a statement that just rang entirely too true, that workspaces, healing, therapy, dog, uh, white people in general are requiring or asking for black and brown people to be vulnerable, but they're not providing the safety necessary for our vulnerability, or they give us very deep, like descriptive and detailed ways to be vulnerable. And when we don't match that, they require still some other type of vulnerability. And, and, and like, that makes sense, right? So, oh, you know, come Whitney, you just be yourself and say your, say your thing. And just, why can't you just be like us? And like, it's okay, you know? But then as soon as I say the thing that, you know, or maybe I do come to work and I'm not really feeling anybody or don't really care. And now I'm, oh, she was just so angry today. Okay. So let me just shut up. <laughs> like I've been doing, and, and, and this, this is safety is, is because I don't know what to say in a session. I don't know what to say at work. I don't know how to do these things. And again, you want me to be in the space with you that you have not created for me to be in. Um, understanding that the client knows what's best, even if it doesn't look like what's best for you, even culturally, right? Because again, someone told us that like, <laughs> I don't know, working at going to school, a four-year institution, and doing the, whatever was better than being a rapper. 
right? Like someone told us that. And, and so they're 30 something. And so you think, you know, and maybe they should go back to school. And so your, your goal in their, their session is telling them to do Western, right? I can, you, you get me, Steve, you get me. So, <laughs> but like just this idea again of, you know, what's right for someone as opposed to what's right for them. And it's, there's a lot of hierarchy, cultural, culturally, right? Um, again, therapy should be a combination of naming experiences, right? Um, being able to put words to certain things. There were a lot of things when I started out early on in not even just college, but like, like on that first day, I didn't have the words to be like, that's totally inappropriate. You should never have said that. I just kind of left feeling really weird. Like something don't sit right with me. And imagine a lot of people leaving sessions saying something don't sit right with me. Something don't make sense. And they don't have the words, right? And so then if I do have some words about how something did, you're going to argue, you know, me in the session or try to get me to think a different way about a thing instead of validating. It doesn't matter what you think of something. The only thing that matters is that person who walked in that door's experience, even if it challenges your worldview. Um, and that's how you give power back to people because society, systems, everything else in the world is has their hand right on their on them and so what's it to you for an hour right to give them like it's like uno and children we all know and when you work with children you know you got to play a lot of games and I have a say on Mondays I beat all the kids on Tuesdays I let them win <laughs> one lesson on one day another lesson on a different day but also if a kid is used to being you know bullied or picked on or oppressed or doesn't have the greatest I'm always gonna let them win uno I don't care if I have a handful of draw fours draw twos and skips they're winning I'm drawing until I pick up a two period right because what is it to me to validate that they need to win somewhere to give them power back to maybe go out and say that to that bully like no I'm not a loser right and that's the same thing but we can do that for kids we can do that for other populations, but there's something about cult, like what what is that thing when it comes to culture or marginalized communities at that um, who already don't have voices in a lot of different areas. Um, and so how do we create those things? And like I said, I would love to hear how people um, create equity and inclusion in practice um, how do you take what you have learned? How do you validate lived experience um, and prioritize that in open safe spaces for black and brown people um, to heal in those practices? And I think that is what's going to change and shift how we do mental health when we can shift how we do therapy and push back against how we've learned therapy, if that makes sense. That's what I got. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much, Whitney, for, for that conversation. Um, I have a ton of questions, but I, <laughs> I want to open it up to the, the viewers on Facebook. 
uh, and the viewers on Zoom. And also open up if anyone wants to answer Whitney's question and talk about, you know, diversity, inclusion, uh, DEI work and how they bring that to what they do, whether in therapy or wellness or the workspace in general and your interactions. Um, why don't we kick it off with either that or any questions that you have? So take some time, think that through and feel free to post or in the chat, send me the questions. I will start off with um, twofold. I, I do have a question for you and I will answer your question a little bit, um, but I do want to make a statement about Uno. That is the hardest thing for, <laughs> for me to do is to let someone uh, win Uno just in general, but then you, you're correct. It's that engagement. So sometimes, even if we try to lose, sometimes Uno has a game of chance and things happen. I like to also uh, include at the, the end of it, if we play multiple sessions that they can kind of dare me to do something ridiculous in the waiting room, just so that they can see, you know, I'm not afraid to be open and put myself in an uncomfortable position and, and engage in that way. So I've done one kid planned it out and had me wear a chicken suit one time. I've done the worm across the floor. I've done some jumping jacks and saying that they're the best and I lost and all those different kinds of kinds of experiences. And I think just to see the light when that happens, is so connecting. And as you were talking about that specific therapeutic space and relationship, that's the most integral part. Right. And, and so if you enter that with judgment or not being open or not being educated by the people you work with and not be inquisitive and, and learn that relationship, a wall just gets put up and you may have a client come for a year, but they're not really benefiting from it because they're just coming because that's the expectation or someone said they should come or they're being mandated to come. When in reality, if we can break down that wall, I feel like that's where a lot of the healing comes from. Um, and I know that you and I have talked about this specifically about therapy, but I think in wellness in general, if you look at different wellness avenues like nutrition or, you know, yoga or, you know, even uh, meditation, right? Like <laughs> to ask people to conform to this idea of being still and sitting with, without understanding where that person's come from or the messages they get from society saying you can't do that. Mm -hmm. It's just setting them up to, again, build that wall and either leave that behind and say it doesn't work or just you know, try to push through it, but never gaining any experience. So I know I said I had a question and a statement, but that was a lot of statement. Um, my question for you, because when we had our podcast, you said you like to tear down all preconceptions, flip it on its head, and that's where the work goes. And you've, you've talked very specifically about some of these changes, the systemic changes that are meant to kind of promote equity or equality by being flashy and saying, oh, look, like this is what we're doing now, or this is how we, we uh, honor that, which in general can be good. But I think you said inherently like racism still exists. What are mm -hmm. you doing about that? I don't care about a name. I don't care about, you know, we, we got to get to the source. Um, so my question is about wellness for the culture. And I, I'm wondering, you mentioned it a little bit, but I know you very specifically wanted it based in Springfield. Um, 
can you tell me a little bit more about wellness for the culture and how you do that work within the community to kind of promote that connective piece? Yeah, yeah, I think um, just doing these educational pieces um, and talking to people about even just changing, like you said, because changing the name to something is fine, right? So we can stop saying cultural, you know, stigma. But then also, if that's as far as you go, that's that's not it, right? Um, and, and also though, that changing the name to something then changes the narrative, then changes your actions. And so continuously talking and dialoguing with people and having them in, in, in creating also a space of safety for white people to ask questions and be vulnerable as well to say, hey, I think I made a mistake here, or what should I have done in this space, or without the judgment or the anger, and, and valid anger, so let's be very clear, right, but also sometimes as a therapist, I know how to remove myself also from a session to allow people to heal and to hear, um, so long as they're not harmful, that's one thing, so, but that is also a space that I think I can create for other people, so that's what I also do in this educational space, for people and people that have their own practices and to say, you know, I don't want to do a disservice to my black and brown clientele, or I would like to maintain my black and brown clientele. And so how, how could I be better at that? And so providing scenarios where I'm not judging, I can hear, okay, here's, here's what it is culturally for us to hear you when you say that, or here's what this means when you, when you do this thing, or, you know, this practice here, or when you only celebrate Black people on, in February, and like, you know, there's, there's so many different things, um, so that, that educational piece is something that I have started doing as well, um, and again, educating multiple communities, because having like a soft opening of different um, wellness events, mental health events in Springfield in particular, and, and catering to this marginalized, why I start here because it's my community and I know what I've experienced here. And so, and the need here is so great um, because we're so amazing human beings in the city. And there's so much trauma though, at the same time in, 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 in the world, right? So starting here with just those educational events. We have a couple coming up and a yearly expo, um, which is like a convention um, and we just have workshops and people from all different healing backgrounds. If you think hopscotch is healing and we can, we can figure out how to make that into a workshop, hopscotch is it, like, that's it, right? And people can come in and get a soft opening. Okay, well, I don't wanna tell you my whole my whole world, or I don't think you want, I want you in my business, or I don't trust you in that way, but I can come to this space for eight hours. I can give you that, right? And and that's the safe space that they have. And then they come in and say, oh, okay. And maybe they meet a therapist there. So this is how you gain people's trust instead of just asserting that like you're trustworthy because even I am not trustworthy because in our community still, I might be bougie. I might be stuck up. I went to school and I think I know better than them. So like, it's still some work because I know my community. And again, since you know that about your community, not that I'm gonna, again, get on my hands and knees and move because I'm not, but, <laughs> but still it's just doing the work because again, by any means necessary, if you really believe in what you're doing. Um, having an internship program for, again, 
college students before they hit the ground running. If you are saying that you're social justice motivated, if you're saying you're an ally, if you're saying you want to help and give back, and, and if this is your lane that you want to be in, here, come here, and let's let's work with these this population together. Let's see. Let's let's do it now because starting while you're in school, it's it's, it's easier to learn something new than it is to unlearn how you've already been operating in the world and then to have been taught and have to done something the same way over and over again. And now someone's telling you you're doing it all wrong. Again, you got a wall up, which then turns into a barrier for someone walking into your office, right? Again, because you have to tear down something as well. Um, so the systems, the education system, all just kind of tearing the veil. Did I answer that? You did, you did. Okay. <laughs> I like that tearing the veil on the education system. It's, it's definitely needed. All right, so no comments or questions yet. I'm going to continue with some of my list <laughs> because I, I just love picking your brain on, on all this stuff. So with everything that we're talking about today, we're talking about systemic and, and racial barriers and, and uh, you know, you mentioned that TV and, and social media is part of that, right? Um, one of the things that I really loved about recently, you posted something on Wellness for the Culture saying one of your clients lost insurance and couldn't continue on. And, and the adaptability you have in, in that, that place in your business to be able to uh, crowdsource you know, funds so that that person wouldn't lose that connection I'm not sure if it was one of your clients or someone else, but I feel like that is definitely challenging. Some of the systemic stuff that comes from, I'll just talk to therapy in general, is just mm -hmm. like this intense need for insurance to receive space, essentially, right? And, and some of the barriers that come to that. And then also some of the concepts related to uh, loss of that or lack of being able to pay um, co-pays or just the fact that you mentioned the DSM. I know we didn't get back around to it, but we can use that here. Um, some of the pressures put on to diagnose in the first session and then use these diagnose, diagnoses guidelines that weren't necessarily, I'm not even going to say necessarily, weren't inclusive right. at all. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you were able to kind of build that adaptability in wellness for the culture and then also about some of those other side systemic issues that do come up related to uh, continuity of care. Mm -hmm. um, so I think some of that uh, social media and, and things of that nature, um, we could even just talk like the discourse around self-care, right? And how it's like clickbait now. And even when we do self-care, it is still a luxury in some ways. And so even kind of trying to repurpose what self-care is to someone, self-care is making a good decision that, that benefits you. It is self-prioritization. It is that, it's as simple as that. It is not laying on the beach or laying on a yacht sipping the mo like a, a margarita it, it, it could be if that is for you but now you have people who don't have access to those means thinking that they can also not achieve self-care like 
can they have anything? Can, can like can, they can't even have self care? So even just talking about what that looks like, self care looks like saying no. I don't want to. So and we glamorize certain things and we make it available to only certain types of people, and that is exactly what mental health was for a very long time. When they say it was for white people, it didn't necessarily mean just because it was a white people thing, but also access to only a certain population of people who one had the affordability or could get good treatment, right? Um, so even things like insurance, a lot of people currently, um, what I see also, and even in myself when I was a little bit younger, is lack of education and benefits. We are the first college, you know, students, first generation college students, people getting in these, and we are first time insurance holders and learning about what these things are. You wouldn't believe how many uh, black and brown people don't know what a flex card is or a health savings account or can't afford those to get taken out of their account because they need every last penny. So when it comes time to using that great health plan that they've you know, purchased finally and, and it's decided that they can get good health plans, you have a $1,500 deductible and no means to pay that. So now you're still <laughs> getting all this, this really big deduction because in Massachusetts, you need health insurance, right? But you can't really pay for the, the, the $1,500 deductible, the whatever, I've seen them $3,000, right? So, and, and, and one of the cases was that I had a client who got a new job. Finally, I'm like, yes, let's do it. She went, applied for this amazing job and I can no longer take her insurance. And while even if I wanted to reduce my rates so she can pay for them, it's still not enough. If I twisted this way and that way, she's like, I got a $1,500 deductible. I can't afford that. I don't know what that looks like. Um, another client lost her job. What does that look like? Oh, well, I have to go on the Mass Health Connector. I have to find you someone from Mass Health. I don't want nobody from Mass Health. Like, and, and she'd be right. Because for the most part, the level of care and treatment people who have state health insurance get, not fair. Right? I know because I was one of the people who could only take myself when we first start. And imagine me fresh out the gate taking certain people. I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning, but this is not that there's, we have to learn somewhere, but a lot of times the, the education, like I said, that I received, the supervision that I was receiving still wasn't enough at certain institutions, right? Um, but if you're not getting that, I can't even be, assist you know assisting the, the most vulnerable population there is they should have the best care right um and i'm not sure what changing that system looks like either but i think even just education um and first you know as as new grads and as new people getting into different tax brackets and incomes and things of that nature there's still so much to learn and i think there's still so many setbacks Awesome. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So we do have a comment, not a question, but a comment on Facebook mm -hmm. Live. It's from Tanya Stewart. She said, we as people have to learn it's okay to say no. Is that self-care? Absolutely. I still struggle with it. Um, I think if 
anything was the best teacher, COVID might have been the best teacher for a lot of people on saying no, because we got a long year to figure out what worked for us and what did not work for us, what was sustainable, what we were not going back to. And some people didn't. Some people were um, called essential, right? And, and, and were overworked still. And so, but I think, yes, self-care is just that. All right, we got a question in the Zoom feed. Mm -hmm. uh, Melissa, this is from you. Do you want to ask the question or do you want me to ask? I can ask it. All right, perfect. So I, I, some of the things that you had said really struck a chord with me. And I think um, as someone who's doing a lot of learning through the process of unlearning, mm -hmm. it can be um, quite uncomfortable to challenge myself or someone else's education or upbringing. Um, there's so many barriers there that I know I've experienced and I see others experiencing. And I just wanted to know, um, how do you open a space of healing and vulnerability for that kind of conversation? Are you thinking how I hold that space or, or how you hold a space for others? hold a space for others if, for, if somebody were engaging in that conversation with me for example um how do i allow i mean there's just so many barriers so i think somebody challenging their own upbringing and education that i feel like they're um hesitant to engage in a conversation if that's where it's going Okay. Um, so I, again, I'll use myself. Um, I'll use myself in that, like I said, I identify as Christian. Um, and it is very hard for me to hear sometimes how that my belief system affects people. I understand that there are some people who are just absurd. And I want people to understand that the, this beauty of this, you know, entity and how I believe and how I'm different. Um, but I also, again, if I can separate myself in knowing what I can do and what I can't do. And I learned that like, again, my intention is never to harm anyone. And so, but what things can I be, you know, intentional about? How can I not further harm someone else? And hearing that is like, well, I don't want to be a Christian because of this, that, and the third. And for me to say, I hear your experience. I am sorry you experienced that. Um, or even ask follow-up questions to hear. And, and so maybe that I can take back what they said and, and educate my fellow, you know, Christians. Um, and to say, you know, someone was talking to me the other day and they said that this thing harms them. And I, I mean, maybe I don't do it, but here's this thing, or here's how I actually benefit in this whole experience. And, and maybe, I think I thought of, you know, <laughs> I'll say this. So there is this recent um, push for, you know, um, spirituality as it is to crystals and, um, ancestors and things like that in my culture specifically and there is a recent tie to like what is witchcraft and things of that nature and so I have been like 
okay, I have to figure out like, okay, these are things that go against what I believe in and how do I still say that this is what I believe, but without saying that what they believe is wrong or how they exist is wrong or, and, and also not take on that for myself into, I don't know if I'm explaining this right. Oh, it's good. Uh, Yeah, no, I get it. (laughs) But just trying really hard, uh, Melissa, not to make it about yourself here. And if any of it applies to you, see what there is for you to make that change and, and then didn't do that. It, if they're saying it in a nice way, I know sometimes people are not saying it in a nice way. Right. Um, in a session, if someone is explaining something that might be harmful to me, um, I just, I, well, what I say is talk to me nice. <laughs> um, I can hear opposition. I can hear um, when someone is opposing something and, and I know how to have perspective um, and understand perspective that we did not grow up the same. And there's, a, um, again, as long as what you're believing or saying and how you're saying it to me is not harmful to me, right? Like you're not being mean, there's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then I can hear you. And that's why I said about having and holding space with someone is sometimes maybe not even not talking at all, just to let them have that space. And if you have something, and even if it contradicts, maybe find someone else to talk to about it because maybe that's not your space. I got you. That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just had a trouble unmuting myself. So <laughs> there's a dead period right there. Um, any last questions or comments that we want to throw out to Whitney as we have her time right now and seeing, you know, any further comments or questions? Last call on those. All right. Well, Whitney, it was amazing as always talking to you and, and getting to, to hear the educational piece of this and, you know, leaving with some tidbits on you know, it doesn't matter if you're a therapist or in wellness or just general practical interactions with people, Mm -hmm. the concept of being able to hear one, if you're being called into something, if someone's giving you a message and honoring that message without necessarily having a visceral reaction, practicing that concept of equanimity of not reacting to your reactions to hold that space. And then two, just some you know, we may not know some of the systemic stuff that we, we can push forward to, to change, but we know it's definitely out there in many different ways and connecting with people who are advocating for that and, and trying to help break down some of those systems, whether by donating to wellness for the culture so that there are some funds in, in case someone does lose insurance, insurance, or, you know, having those tough conversations with family members or supervisors or, um, friends or colleagues uh, about some of the stuff we learned here today. Um, Something really stuck with me and I really loved how you phrased it when you were talking about your supervisor and talking about education. And there was a comment right after you mentioned education, you said, or avoidance to education. And I think that's a huge takeaway from this is this idea of we subconsciously can have this avoidance of, of experience or avoidance of tough situations or the education that we know will actually be more generative for people. And so really recognizing that, bringing awareness and, and doing that work. 
So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.